Today we are continuing uh, in our study of Luke, a journey that began really in the middle of July last year. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's the last time I was here. So today we're uh, looking at, well, let's, let me back up. So if we look at the theme, uh, our certain salvation, walking in the footsteps of the man who is God. Um, that's, that's the theme. But today we find ourselves in chapter 18, near the end of the section that began back in chapter 9, which is really the heart of the book of Luke, when Jesus starts his ministry and begins to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. He uses stories, he uses parables. And so we're just finishing up, and next week we'll be done with basically Jesus uh, preaching and teaching on the kingdom uh, of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is something brand new, never been realized before. So this was something that people thought, wow, what is this teaching? What is this strange teaching? We haven't heard this before. It's because it's been hidden from the foundations of the world, right? Scripture tells us. So a section today that Pastor Ron, well, the section entitled, that section that I'm talking about is entitled The Mission of Jesus Explain the Kingdom from Galilee to Jerusalem. So starting back in chapter 9, and Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem where ultimately he's going to be crucified. And so now we're nearing the point where Jesus is going to, he's preparing his disciples, telling them the kingdom is here. Now it's my time. I'm going to, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up. He's going to be crucified. And he's going to suffer, but he's going to rise again. And oddly enough, Luke tells us they didn't understand what he was talking about. Jesus is trying to communicate in a variety of ways to prepare them for this event. And we don't know what the future is, but God does. And he always tells us ahead of time, if we're listening, what's coming up next. He prepares us. Doesn't doesn't necessarily tell us what's happening, but he prepares us for what's happening next. And I'm sure many of you can attest to that in your life where God's prepared you for the next stage or the next event. And so that's what Jesus is doing right now. So last week, Jim taught us uh, from Luke 17 about looking for the kingdom and the signs of his return. So now this is the second coming because they didn't really understand the religious leaders Many of the disciples, Jim said, missed the signs. They kind of blew right through the stop sign. They didn't realize it. The religious leaders came to him and uh, Jesus and said, uh, tell us, when is the kingdom going to be here? They were expecting some triumphal entry and to be delivered from Rome, right? And they just didn't see it. But Jesus said, um, the kingdom is in your midst. So, The kingdom has two phases, and that's what Jim taught last week on in Luke 17. There's the now phase, which is a time of grace, and which we're in right now. So the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, when Jesus explained to the Pharisees. And then there's the not yet phase, so the time at the end, which we call the second coming. And that's not the time of grace. That's the time of judgment. And so now we're living in this in-between time between the now where we're living in the kingdom age and we're part of the church and doing his work. But there's this future time coming, the not yet, where 
ultimately the entire earth will be judged, right? Just like, just like in the days of Noah, uh, we're told, where the entire earth was, was uh, flooded. So this week brings us to chapter uh, 18, 1 through 14, where Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, and he's preparing his disciples for difficult times ahead. Um, so we're living in a time of grace. We're also living in a time of a fallen Genesis 3 world, where God's grace compels him to hold back justice for a time until he returns. So we're living in this kind of awkward time where justice does not always prevail. Justice is not always, uh, does not always win the day. And as subjects of the king, so we experience difficult times where justice does not prevail. So the question is, how do we go about living in kingdom living in an unjust world? So for the answer to that, um, we're going to find by taking a look at two parables on prayer, the persistent widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector. But before we begin, uh, let me take a moment and just dedicate this time to prayer. Lord, we are just so grateful and thankful for your word that you don't leave us in the dark. Uh, You tell us um, what is to come. And Lord, that we might have hope. Our hope is in you. And thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for leading and guiding the church that we could be a part of, that we grow up together uh, to maturity and um, accomplish your will here on earth. And so we dedicate this, these next few moments. I pray that we would all have ears to hear. Um, what your spirit is speaking to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so kingdom living in an unjust world, God's got you covered. So that's kind of the title for this morning. Two parables, Luke 18, 1 through 14. And um, the first parable is the parable of the persistent widow. We've probably read it many, many times. And so I'd like to start by actually reading it again. I'm going to read it in a hardcover version, which I rarely do anymore. I like my electronic version. So if you're with me, I'm in Luke 18, and we're going to read 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let's let's, uh, kind of unpack this just a little bit as we go forward. And um, first of all, this parable is found only in Luke. Uh, That's the only place you're going to find it. When Jesus said them, he told them a parable. Who was he talking to? Probably his disciples. Uh, If we go back to uh, chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus actually turned to his disciples and started explaining some things, and he really never transitioned. So 
at this point, my, my best guess and in the commentaries would he's probably just speaking to his disciples and maybe there's some other people around, but that's who he's probably speaking to. The next thing we want to uh, unpack just for a minute here is what are parables? So parables, simply stated, are simple comparisons that Jesus used to teach important truths about the kingdom of God. Remember, his mission, his purpose was to come and teach about the kingdom of God. So the word parable actually means comparison or to put before or to put beside. So it's, it's a story alongside of a truth. So Jesus is trying to explain something that we've never seen since the foundation of the world, this kingdom of heaven. And he's trying to explain it in terms that we earthlings, right, can understand it because we don't have the mind of Christ, and we don't have uh, all knowledge, right? So he's trying to explain to us what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. And so he chose to use parables. And so every time you read about a parable, it's Jesus trying to explain something about the kingdom of heaven. And so some truth that he's trying to communicate to us in only a way that we can really understand it. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, as he explained to those in Galilee. Jesus told his parables with things that never seem to change. They're timeless. So there's a certain agelessness to each one. So like the hidden treasure talks about, you know, value, things that don't don't change. We put value in a lot of different things. The Good Samaritan is about kindness and love in action, something that really doesn't change. Today, Jesus is using a judge. We'd be familiar with a judge and a widow. Um, Later, he tells stories, not necessarily a parable, about a rich ruler, a rich young ruler. So we can identify with that as well. But that's more of kind of a, uh, not a parable, but an actual uh, true story. What parables are not? Parables are not uh, an allegory. They're not a symbolic work. You know, um, Pastor Levi used to say that um, parables and stories, they don't stand on, or like an allegory, they don't stand on four legs. You You can't identify every part of a parable and try and draw some truth from it, right? It has a message and it has really one central point, and that's what we're going to try and work on today. Parables are not fables or legends. Uh, stories that teach a lesson, so um, they don't fall into that category either. And parables are not proverbs. So proverbs, as Solomon said, he made observations about life, and he wrote all those down, thousands of them, right? Those were just observations about life that short, well-known sayings that um, a fact, and they're not a story. So parables is really a simple comparison of something that we're very familiar with, something simple and ageless that Jesus used to help us understand truths about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 34, you don't have that in your notes. I'm just going to read it to you, is all things, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what was hidden since the foundations of the world. So if we go to the next verse, let's make some more observations here that um, 
Let's go to, um, if we go to 18.1, let's go there together. 18.1 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. So the question is, he's teaching in parables and teaching them to pray, but that they would not lose heart. And so the question is, why might the disciples lose heart? You can answer that if you like. You can throw out an answer. But why would they lose heart? Why would Jesus think that they would lose heart? Why is he telling them, I want you to pray? Right? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he told them, but they don't really understand. So their Savior, their Lord, the one who's discipling them, right, uh, is going to be mistreated, abused, and crucified. And, and not only that, but Jesus also sees the next, the second coming. And, and there's going to be a time that we live in right now where justice is not going to prevail. It's gonna, there's going to be challenging times. So he doesn't want them to lose heart. He doesn't want them to get discouraged. Um, so to really answer the question a little bit more fully, uh, we could go back to uh, Luke 17, 22 through 30. And so we have just a minute here. So if you would turn with me to Luke 17, 22. This is what Jim covered last week. In 1722 through 30, he said, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or there. Do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the coming or so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was written, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So uh, Jim went over this last week, so I'm not going to go into more detail. But he was telling them that what was going to happen. And I think they would identify with those stories. They had uh, scrolls. They had the Old Testament at that time, right? And they go, oh, it was like the days of Lot or like the days of Noah. We know what that was like. And so they had scripture that they could go to and see, you know, what were the days really like? What was what were the people like during that time? What was it like? If we go to and I'm not going to I'll just read it here. But Genesis uh, 613 says, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we kind of get a flavor of what it was like back then, you know, in the days of Noah. The earth was completely filled with violence. God basically got frustrated or 
I wouldn't say frustrated. Does God get frustrated? He was fed up. <laughs> he had had enough, right? And it was just continual. And so also like the days of Lot, what were the days of Lot like? In Genesis uh, 18, 20 through 21, it says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. In 19.13 in Genesis, the angels said, For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So there was a time when they, they looked at that and they could have figured, okay, they could draw some conclusions from what was happening uh, in the time of Lot, in the time of Noah. There was great evil. There was wickedness. There was the judgment was sudden, right? Because when Lot left, God destroyed uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He had warned them, but he, he finally destroyed Lot's wife, turned around and became a pillar of salt. She looked, she turned back. There wasn't time. It was very sudden in in what happened there. So judgment was swift. Times were filled with violence. The sin of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was very grave, and God judged the cities. Those who were judged appeared to be oblivious to the impending danger, right? They rejected God's warnings, okay? There's people around us, some of our neighbors and things, too, that maybe are oblivious to what the Word of God says, that this future and what the future is going to bring. It's up to us to to warn them and to give them the good news of the gospel. The disciples, he thought, maybe would lose hope due to the violence, the sin, and injustice that they would see. Let's go to the judge. Okay? So the judge... He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In verse 2, judges were supposed to, what was essential to their duty, judges were supposed to be God's representatives administering justice to those who needed it. So that was a judge's role. But when we read in verse 2 that there was a In a certain city that there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. A judge who neither feared God nor regarded man uh, was controlled really only by his own inclinations. So when King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in Judah, he instructed them to consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for man but for the Lord. For with the Lord... Our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So we get the idea of this judge had none of that. So completely opposite to God. Let's take a look at the widow. Okay. Verse three. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So the widows were the probably the most defenseless in Hebrew society. The Old Testament often refers to them as being oppressed. They were often legal victims. And this was probably the case for this woman. She was a legal victim. 
likely she was one of those later described in Luke as victims of those who devour widows. She pleaded for justice. She wasn't pleading for mercy. She pleaded for justice. So she felt she was in the right or she was in the right. And um, it wasn't like she was asking for help or assistance to do something. But she was asking that justice would be done, that this situation would be corrected, right? That's what she's asking for. Next verse. Let's go on uh, to verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterward, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, the judge, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The whole beat me down is, is literally uh, to strike the eye or to give a black eye. And so... That's the way he's describing this. Is that he's, she's basically just worn him down, and he doesn't want to get uh, beat up by this gal. So let's look up and see what happens here. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And this is, I think, where we need to pay attention, because God already told us why he's, Jesus already told us why he's giving us this parable, Right? so that we would continue to pray and not lose heart. But here he's saying, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So Jesus really explains at this point that this is a parable of contrast between an unrighteous judge and God himself. Will not God give justice to his elect? The clear lesson from the parable is that God is not like the judge. God is good, and he's gracious, and he will hear the cry of his people. Uh, we are not like the nameless widow, right? For we are his chosen one whom he loves. So, it's not our job at this point, and I don't, I don't think the takeaway from this parable is that we need to badger or pester God or impress him by our piety, um, our continued asking. Uh, will we continue to ask God about things? Yes, I, we will. But his response here is not dependent upon how we how many times a day we pray for something, right? Okay? God is not like the unrighteous judge. We don't have to pester him. God is God. He cares for each one of us. He loves us. Uh, we're his chosen ones, and he hears us. And so with the faith of a mustard seed, as Pastor Ron described, we don't need to have a huge amount of faith. We just need to have faith because we have faith in our God, right? So... At this point, I think the, the, what we learn or, the, or one of the takeaways from this is that, is that we don't need to impress God by asking him over and over and over again. We just need to pray. Okay? Something else we need to talk about here just briefly, and I think, is, and that's this term justice. So when we talk about justice, it says God will, some of the takeaways, God will bring uh, justice 
what does this justice really mean? Uh, that term gets thrown around a lot today. We hear things like uh, social justice, things like that. Justice really means to make things right. Okay, It's to make things right. So there's a standard, and we want to make things just or justified. And it's rooted really in the character of God. I mean, there, there's just volumes written on what justice really is and how it's applied and things like that. But, but when it comes right down to it, justice is making things right. So it's what the widow wanted. She wanted, I just want you to make things right. That's what she was pestering the judge about, right? Proverbs 37, 28 says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Proverbs 28, 5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So if you expect your non-believing co-worker, non-believing neighbor, non-believing family member to understand really justice, it's just not going to happen. Uh, Scripture is pretty clear about that, that justice is understood through spiritual eyes. Proverbs 29, 26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. So justice is really a gift that comes from God. God makes things right. Samuel, about speaking about David, David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity for all his people. So David, acting as God's agent, really kind of as a judge, because that was the role of a judge to administer justice. But that was David's role. When the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon because she wanted to see, she had heard all these really good things about Solomon, and so she wanted to visit and see what was going on. And this is what she said when she was done. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as asking for the Lord has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever. He has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. If you just do a quick uh, search of the word justice, it's all throughout the Bible. God is very concerned about justice and, and justice for his people for us. So the takeaways, as we have up here, is that we should persist in prayer. Okay, the longer the time goes on until the Lord's return, the more relevant Jesus' parable is. The parable calls for prayer, persistence, and really, and patience, something that's become more necessary the longer that we wait. What should our attitude be as we face injustice as believers? Okay, good question, because we see it all the time, right? Our call is not to strike back uh, in kind or be discouraged and lose heart, but to turn to God and rest in the promise that he has made to vindicate us, right? We are never to pay back evil for evil. Jesus was clear about that. And so in the meantime, during this not yet time, um, we're going to experience injustice. We're going to continue to experience injustice. But uh, we need to keep praying for relief and seeking God as, as we see this happen around us. Does this mean that we must never engage in fervent prayer? 
You know, so many of take the takeaway for so many when they read this parable, and I probably did it for years, is I just need to pray harder. I need to pray more. You know, if I only prayed more, that would have never happened, right? If, uh, if I only prayed more fervently. When I was down in Mexico, and this was, this was uh, I went down there to Guadalajara in, as a uh, freshman, I think, in high school. Took a train trip all the way down there. And we went around the city, and all these large basilicas, churches, that's what they call them, basilicas, and we were walking by and we saw these people uh, on their knees crossing this big, huge courtyard that was probably the size of a football field or bigger, two football fields, on their knees, bare-skinned. And the thought was, I asked, well, why are they, why are they actually doing this? It's because they felt if they experienced pain going across there that God would hear their prayer, you know? And it happens. I don't think that was the idea that God had for us to, you know, um, hear. Not out of not out of this uh, parable. Uh, we need to trust Him as as we pray. So does this mean that we never engage in fervent prayer? Not at all. The teaching of the parable uh, is that we must continue in our prayers, even when there seems to be no answer. Because God, unlike the unjust judge judge is loving and gracious we persist in prayer not because we had not yet gotten god's attention but we know he cares and he will hear us so that's why we persist in prayer once we become a believer our whole relationship with god changes right now we're his sons and we're his daughters so why would we not want to continue in prayer and talking to him uh, every day you know scripture tells us to rejoice always pray constantly you in all things give thanks, for this is God's will in, in Christ Jesus for you. So that's something that we do constantly. So we're not encouraged to not fervently prayer here. Second takeaway is God will bring justice. Uh, God is just, and he shares our longing for justice, and he will not deny it. One day he will execute vengeance, and it's going to come swiftly. So right now during this not yet time, what's happening? Is God is being patient. It's a time of grace. So he's waiting for all those to come to him, right? So we're going to continue to live in this time when there isn't the law and order that we would necessarily want. But also we know that because Jesus is coming again, we can't just live the way we want to live, right? So I think that's another takeaway here is that God will eventually bring justice. And so we can't just do whatever we want to do. So conclusion on this parable is that the story of the persistent woman, widow reminds us of the power of potential prayer. Um, if this woman's persistent request to an unjust judge results in an answer, how much more will our prayers to of faith to our loving Heavenly Father be answered? So it's it's, it's a parable of comparison, contrasting an unjust judge to a loving Heavenly Father. Amen? Okay. So let's go on to the parable of the Pharisee. This is the second one, and we'll start off by going ahead and reading that. So the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
parable number two. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he went on to say, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Okay? We almost have to go back in time ourselves because when we think of a Pharisee, we think of a guy who's you know, a crook right? He's he's the bad guy. But at the time, this story would have been pretty shocking for his hearers to hear because the Pharisee um, was admired by the common man because he he was looked up to for his piety, his devotion to the Mosaic law. So our contemporary equation of Phariseeism with hypocrisy would not be, have been made by the first century people. So they're so his hearers are saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. This, this good guy, the guy that we look up to, he's a follower of the law, diligent, devoted, devout, um, and now he's the bad guy in this story. And Jesus did that a lot, right? Because we had misunderstandings of what the kingdom of heaven was really like. And Jesus was trying to help them to understand it's not what you guys think, right? It's not what we think. Tax collector was uh, among the most despised members of the Jewish society because of their reputation of embezzlement. So they, right, they made their money. So they were Jewish men who turned their backs basically on their brothers and they were contractors basically for the Roman government and they were paid by the amount that they received over what was due, right? So they would extort extra money out of families, probably their neighbors, um, and that's how they would get paid. Some of them became very wealthy that way, right? And so that's the way they were viewed. And so for Jesus to use a tax collector in this, um, they would immediately identify him as the bad guy. Yeah, he's, he's the guy who, that we don't want to associate with. So the Mishnah prohibits even receiving alms from a tax collector at his office since the money is presumed to have been gained illegally. If a taxpayer entered a house, all that was in it became unclean. The very presence of a taxpayer in the temple, the house of God, was viewed as an act of defilement. So that's how they treated him. So when they're hearing this story, and Jesus is basically saying that the tax gatherer is, you know, he's the guy that goes home justified. So Jesus is making a point. So what, what's the point? So let's take a look at that. Right at the beginning, in verse 9, uh, Jesus says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So right at the outset, Jesus gives us the reason. Um, it's always nice when he tells us why he's telling us the story, right? So Luke doesn't say who the parable was directed to. 
but rather he's focuses on the two men in the parable that and he's assuming that his listeners would understand who these guys are. Verse 11, the Pharisees standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, unjust adulterers, or even the tax collectors, like this tax collector that's over here, right? So the Pharisees' prayer, basically there's kind of a external air of, of humility at the beginning because there's thanksgiving. He kind of gives a nod to God, you know, basically, you know, I thank you, God, right? But, and David even did that in Psalm 26. David speaks of his blameless life and separation from sinners. Uh, the difference here is really in the heart attitude of the Pharisee. David had a pure heart. The Pharisee had a heart of pride, praying about himself and seeking really self-glorification and started comparing himself. Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Both fasting and tithing were signs of piety in Jerusalem, but the fasting was really required only on the day of atonement. But pious Jews would fast twice a week. So that's why he's saying on Mondays and Thursdays. I don't know how they figured that out, but they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. The problem is really not the Pharisees' accomplishments and what he's accomplished, um, which are impressive, but his self-righteousness and the attitude of superiority, right? He's not like this tax gatherer or collector over here. Verse 13, Jesus goes on to say, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Of course, being in his breast was a sign of mourning, right? We recognize that, or repentance. But also, he would not lift up his eyes. I think that's just a great a descriptive uh, way for me to see that he, there was a humility there. He couldn't even lift up his eyes because he was recognizing who God is and who he is. I remember when Peter said, Lord, don't come to me. I'm a sinner, right? Peter recognized that. And I'm a sinful man. And so this tax gatherer also, he recognized I'm a sinful man. Did the Pharisee recognize his sin? That was a rhetorical question. And you can answer, yeah, so you don't need to answer it. But no, he really didn't. The, the Pharisee was basically making, building a case Look, I've done all these things, right? I do all these things, so therefore God should be listening to me. Of course, we, we never do that kind of thing. You know, I go, I go to church. I'm, I'm at church every time the doors open, you know, so God should listen to me. Why did this happen to me? I did everything right. So we can go down that road too. I, I can go down that road too. Is I did everything right and still. I remember Janine and I at one time, um, I was, was, this was in my between jobs time, and there was a family, uh, a, a church up north that was coming south. And they, they were in a, like a small, we call them access buses at OCTA, but they're, they're about a, tw- a 15 passenger van, you know, they have the, the add-on to it. And so the driver was driving on the freeway. The van was full. 
and he had a heart attack. And the van veered off, and it was down off the 405 down in Irvine. Van veered off, and fortunately it went off the road and crashed, but it was still upright, and everybody was okay. They tried to wake him up. and it, So what happened was they, um, they called us because we knew some of the people. They were at a, a Tascadero Bible Church, and Janine's sister goes there. So they called us to see if they had a, we could uh, house them while they got another van, and so we did. Brought him over here. They stayed out in the gym. And uh, I remember we drove over and we were helping them out. And when we were doing that, uh, we're all out there standing by the gym on the outside on the sidewalk. And somebody came, jumped over the wall and smashed our window in our car and took Janine's purse with everything in it. All the keys, everything. And I think phone too, everything, right? And our... First tendency is, Lord, uh, we're, we're doing this to help you, and we got the car here, and we're helping these people out, and look what happened, right? So I don't think I'm not exempt from, from this issue, you know, from coming before God. Look at God. Look at all what I'm doing, and how come this bad stuff happens? And it does. We're living in a Genesis world, right? A fallen world and things, bad things happen sometimes. And, and now we kind of look at it and just realize, you know, it's God's stuff and he takes it. It's just a lesson that we learn, right? We live in a fallen world. We pray for those people who do things like that. Tax gatherer was standing far off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes. He said, be merciful to me. God longs to forgive and to welcome back those who repent. So Jesus, in in verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the parable really illustrates the need for humility. It's not so much a parable about how to pray as it is a sharp challenge to our conventional understanding of what goodness is in relation to God. I think when we realize who God is, our goodness just kind of all falls to the wayside, right? But when we compare ourselves to those in Arizona, right? We compare ourselves to other people, our neighbors, our friends, then um, it's a lot easier. Well, at least I'm not like that guy. I don't do that stuff, right? So I'm pretty good. I don't think God ever asks us to do that, compare ourselves with other people, because the standard is, is righteousness, is holiness, and only God is holy. And that's why later on we're going to read about the, the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus and said, uh, good teacher, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know, obey the commandments. And, and then uh, and Jesus said, well, one thing you're lacking is you don't, uh, sell all your stuff, right? And then so the disciples came to him afterwards and said, well, how, you know, how is somebody going to be saved? And Jesus said, well, it's, it's harder for a rich man than, you know, to pass through the eye of a needle than, or a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in heaven. And so the disciples were saying, well, well, richness was a sign of God's blessing. That was their thought. And Jesus said, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. Salvation is only possible with God, right? And, um, 
And the same here is we can never measure up no matter what uh, we do. We can never measure up. So the takeaways here, two takeaways. One is realize God's grace is not earned. And two, humility and grace go hand in hand. So what do we learn from the two parables? The persistent widow, we learn to persist in prayer and not to give up to pray. Some of you use that acrostic, P-R-A-Y. It works really well. It's, it follows the Lord's prayer to a large extent. But to praise, repent, ask, and yield to wait on the Lord, right? Second is to wait on God for justice. We live in a fallen world of sin and injustice. Third is to be faithful in serving until the king returns. And for the Pharisee and the tax collector, God's grace is not earned. Be humble. Uh, Humility and grace go hand in hand.